Hello and welcome to episode 272 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm Weishan and I've got Tony with me here today. Hey T, how's it going? It's been raining a bunch. We have a, I don't even know if it's from, we have a hurricane moving up the east, uh, the, and it's in the Caribbean. I still think uh, by the time that this goes live, it should have made it landfall in the U.S., but I hear it's pretty crappy out there in, uh, in Hong Kong as also, so. Yeah, we've had pretty much two consecutive weekends, weekends, not days, weekends of uh, rain. Uh, we mm-hmm. had a typhoon that just passed and just this past week, um, we had a we had basically torrential rain. Uh, rec- we recorded what? I want to ask an ignorant question that I should know the answer to, but I don't. It's, okay. What's the difference between a typhoon and a hurricane? Do I think know? they're the same. I have just, I have Googled it before. I can think like the, the US same. Get, can can like New York get hit with a typhoon? Is that possible? Or do we only get hurricane? Because for the first time in like it was like I don't know, maybe it was like at least fifty, maybe a hundred years, California got hit with a hurricane. Because usually the hurricanes in the in the Americas, you know, start in the Atlantic, come up, you know, through the Caribbean hit florida up in the carolina and then sometimes they'll like you know um hurricane oh god what was sandy yes thank you that's great wow. that you remember the name of oh it. Yeah, my I gosh wow <laughs> i was in serbia when that hit i didn't experience it at all um but yeah no so it usually makes its way up but then for the first time we had when they hit california that it was just like this wild thing because they were having both drought and too much rain it was just like wild so I have the answer yes, for you. You have an answer? Okay, great. Yeah. I was still so, blustering there. <laughs> uh, thank, thanks for giving me the time. Uh, but basically, the difference in the names are purely geographic. So in the North Atlantic and Northeast Pacific Oceans, it's it's called Hurricane. And in the Northwest Pacific Ocean, um, and I guess below whatever, my, yeah, it's they're called typhoons. Going out there, I don't know, whatever you call it. <laughs> so technically, yes, it is, it is the same thing. So we had a hurricane, I guess. Um, for all you folks in the uh, in the U.S. and Canada, like <laughs> where, doing a great job. <laughs> but anyway, so we had a typhoon, and then we've just had torrential rain um, Thursday. Uh, so this was like the seventh. Um, maybe 7th or 8th of uh, September. Um, It rained 7.9 inches in one hour. And that is the most we have recorded. Hong Kong has recorded since I think it's 1884. Um, Well, since they started documenting things anyway. So not Mm -hmm. sure before that. But uh, I hear that in the UK, they have uh, just uh, finished, just gone past their um, heat wave. Uh, for this year, but uh, they had like 60, sorry, they had six six days of consecutive uh, temperatures that uh, hit 32, uh, 30 to 32 degrees Celsius, which is around 86 Fahrenheit. So, but not it's so quite, bad. not so bad. I mean, but um, it's actually quite nice in the summertime, you know, but in September. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah it's. Well, I'm pretty sure they will disagree with with us. You know, I'm used Last to that we kind of weather. I were in the weather. '90s, so it was it was pretty brutal. So 
Yeah, I have mm. nothing. I have no, no, uh, no sympathy for them. But, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so yeah, eighty degrees, eighty-five degrees, eighty-eight degrees. This is beautiful summer weather in September. Um, you know, as Brits do, they they do like to uh complain i was going to use a curse word there but i didn't want to have to give you more work shun but they do like to complain even though it's a country that says that their motto is keep calm and carry on they're like oh my (laughs) god it's it's 86 degrees and we don't have air conditioners it's called a fan just have a fan blow on you i don't you know it's i'm in my room right now it's like i have a fan blowing on me i'm perfectly fine anyway (laughs) <laughs> who, do, who, do, who, who do we have today? <laughs> oh, I, I brought on David Sherrod. He's a good friend of mine, and he's currently the global head of data product commercialization at Senate Chartered Bank in Singapore. Um, David, this is David's first time on the podcast. A lot of Davids, and we've had in the past yes, few weeks, David actually. Yes, doing this uh, last week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, we talk all about um, monetizing data, what consists, what do you, how do you define a data product, what are some of the steps that, you know, firms both on the buy side and the sell side, you know, need to do when they look at trying to monetize their data. So yeah, we delve right into that. Orders technology is at its best when we are talking to data people about wonky data subjects. So I look forward to this. Let's get to it. Alrighty. Okay, joining me is David Sherrod. He's the Global Head of Data Product Commercialization at Standard Chartered Bank in Singapore. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? Hi, all good. Looking forward to it. Great. So uh, before we begin, we're we're actually going to be talking about, uh, in a nutshell, all about monetizing data. But before we start uh, and get into that topic, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and what your current role uh, encompasses. Yeah, I mean, ironically, I don't actually have a particularly data-driven background. I'm a sort of career COO, uh, 30, 30 plus years in the industry now, uh, most uh, most continents ex South America, uh, primarily capital markets, primarily FIT, and started life as a risk officer, became a COO, and uh, I'm now really just looking and focusing at how we leverage the data that we've got uh, just to monetize, uh, and really focus there is on what constitutes the data product and how can we make money off it. Great, thank you. Well, I I think it's important to kind of set the scene before we get to our main topic, and how we're going to do that is by kind of very briefly discussing the current regulatory environment. So, David, how do you view it, and especially when it comes to using new technologies or existing technology stacks, um, including you know AI, blockchain, what have you? Uh, you know, what is the current impact? Um, what what do you see currently, and what is the impact for capital markets? Yeah, and I think it's 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 a it's a super framing question because you know, firstly, I am equally not a regulatory specialist, and I'm not a compliance specialist. Um, and the reason I say that is because the the, the landscape is evolving, um, and I think that's probably the most important thing to, to to focus on is that we are operating in a space where there is a sort of lack of regulatory and legislative framework to a lot of the sort of stuff we're talking about. Now, you know, clearly from a Gen AI perspective, which has got a lot of column inches uh, recently, you know, there is clearly evolving regulatory consideration. MAS in Singapore, as an example, has has, has very much taken the lead. We have the FEAT regulation, F-E-A-T. 
FCA has again had consultation papers on the utilization of things such as synthetic data. Um, SEC, as we know with Gensler, is looking at the use of robo-advisors. Um, and, 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 and I think the last time I looked, that was due to be penned and tabled around October. So I think you know the the fundamental message is, is that this is like a lot of spaces rapidly evolving. Um, it's terribly exciting because it's rapidly evolving. But I think the most fundamental consideration for anybody operating in the financial services is, you know, you have to look um, at the evolving regulatory landscape and make sure that you have the appropriate controls in place. Um, and, you know, that's not just about doing the right thing, uh, which clearly you have to do from an ethical uh, an ethical perspective, um, but also just understanding the, 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 the truly geographical nature of what it is you're potentially doing, because suddenly with data, geographical boundaries become you know, slightly more difficult to, to, to delineate. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's, it's it's an evolving space. It's it's tough to navigate. OK, so then, I mean, coming down to, well, productizing data, you know, and particularly for a bank, uh, um, I, I'm sure this work also extends over in the buy side as well as at the exchange um, uh, level as well. Um, we have exchanges trying to basically branch out from their existing um, existing businesses, right? Which is like listing and transactions to kind of like, okay, we have all this data. How do we package it differently and kind of expand in their market data categories? Um, so, how how do how do these regulations or like this evolving scene of uh, in the regulatory space actually affect uh, efforts to kind of productize data? I think again, super question. It's um, you know, it, it's almost divorced from the regulatory conversation in part because the key question really is going to be multi-dimensional because your data is multi-dimensional. Um, you know, there's the most basic level of data such as transactional level data or or, or, or ticks. So you've got the Bloomberg's, you've got the Refinitivs that have been in this business for for decades. Um, you know, certainly Bloomberg and Reuters. The the, the other aspect is then how do you take information that you've got and within the known regulatory guardrails and legislative frameworks that are in operation, create new insights, new products. And I think, you know, this is, you know, from my perspective, and as I said, 30 years in the business, uh, 30 years plus, primarily operating in that COO space markets regulation type activity. You know, the one thing that's absolutely front and center is that just because something isn't necessarily firmly rules based regulated at this point in time, you know, the regulators clearly expect you to operate in a manner that is, uh, you know, in, 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 in keeping with the principles of the regulation. You know, FCA is a principles based regulator. And so, you know, what has to be absolutely front and center in anything that we develop is, you know, how would this actually look from a regulatory and a legislative perspective? Now, Ultimately, if you think about what we're trying to do with data product, we're trying to do something that creates an outcome. And that outcome in our business is typically a financial product, which typically would be a regulated product, a regulated financial product. So, you know, really, I think it's it's a very it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. You're you're looking at things over three dimensions, um, internal versus external, monetization versus non-monetization. Um, is this value add? Is it cost reduction? So there's a whole bunch of competing dynamics that determine what actually does constitute a, pro a, a data product. 
And underlying all of that, and I think, again, most people who are listening to this will, 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 will share the same sentiment, is there is no definition of what constitutes a data product. Now, as bizarre as that sounds, when I go and sell an, an interest rate uh, product or, or, or a bond, there's a term sheet. We know the standardized aspects and the standard dimensions of what constitutes that financial product. So there's, 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 there's a unanimity across the market. In data product, that conformity and agreement of what the constitution of the product is doesn't necessarily exist. So that makes it an even more complex place to navigate. Um, and I guess, you know, really the, the other important dimension to this is an agreement with the internal custodians and internal stakeholders. We have CDOs, we have compliance, we have stakeholders in terms of who believe that they own the data. Again, there's a whole different question of who's the data owner versus, uh, you know, who's the data subscriber. Um, you know, and then of course that equally, once you've got to the point of, okay, I have an insight, I have an idea, I have something that's going to generate an outcome which could be potentially commercial. It's within the boundaries of the legislative and regulatory framework as we know it. You know, then you have to benchmark that with a geographical lens because, you know, let's take a hypothetical example. If I want to sell interest rate products to institutional customers over a mobile device, you know, clearly people are looking at this in the future. Well, actually, you have to then go back to the underlying financial product terms to see is that product in that form permissible to be deployed and delivered and offered for treatment for sale in that market via this medium. So then it becomes a multi-dimensional linkage back to the underlying financial product regulation and legislation. And finally, once we've done all that, um, you know, it's a risk-based assessment really in terms of the applicability of that product and the commercial viability of that product once all the considerations have been taken into place to understand whether or not actually it's a viable product to sell. Long-winded answer, but it's a complex environment. That, uh, it's, yeah, it sounds really interesting. And particularly when, I mean, because I think a lot of projects now also, um, uh, you know, they break, break boundaries, right, in terms of from a geographical standpoint. So how does that actually play into, uh, you know, uh, I guess a, in a way like creation of a data product? And like if let's say a bank or, or an asset manager wants to, you know, implement something at its different uh, different areas, right? In US, Europe, China, even, you know, how do they go about doing that? Again, you know, it's the it, 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 it's the acid test question, right? Is everybody's different? Every market's different. Everyone's definition of what their product is 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 is, is slightly different. You know, I, I've talked to multiple data product participants, and you know, the variability and the breadth of what they consider a product is is is, is equally significant. Um, you know, if we look at the visas and the mastercards of this world they will have a very different use case to a, a, a high frequency hedge fund. You know, the the products that one person is selling or, or one company is selling relative to what the consumption by another company is, you know, clearly it's very different based on the use case. So I think that's the first thing, you know, everybody's different. Um, you know, one end of the spectrum, as we said, you have the data brokers, the Refinitives, the Bloombergs, um, who are just selling the price information and applicable analytics to that data. Um, you know, clearly that's insights, that's visibility, that's transparency. Yeah, then there's the next order of products where you know, vendors 
uh, and, and I use the term in its broadest possible sense, will look to sell insights. You know, the classic being, you know, you just pick an example, right? Uh, how many people aged between X and Y bought vanilla ice cream on this particular period? Right? Yeah, that that is an insight that is potentially useful to a milk producer, an ice cream producer or a retailer. Um, but then you can expand on the correlation and the complexity of that conversation and that question. You know, how many people bought that vanilla ice cream on this particular day? What was the temperature range of that period? So looking at causality and, 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 and potential correlation, because that in itself is equally another potential insight. And so, you know, super simple examples and super basic, and clearly it's much more complex than that in reality. But the point being is that you have a base case and then you can always layer on complexity above that. Above that. And we can keep extrapolating. Um, you know, one of my favorite favorite examples, actually, this is where it becomes very real world very, very quickly. Uh, in the US, there was a health economic study on Alzheimer's disease. Um, and this showed that by using behavioral analytics, it's, it's, it's my favorite example. So anyone I've spoken to before, I apologize because I've given this example many times. But um, the behavioral analytics of retail consumers and their banking and financial transactions behavior was able to identify, and I think the figure was around six years on average, early diagnosis of Alzheimer's prior to the medical profession. And so, you know, suddenly this is a super valuable piece of data product because you have the ability to identify pockets, concentrations, individuals who potentially would need medical services at the future date. Now, of course, bringing that right the way back to the conversation we had at the very start about ethical treatment of data and the ethical use of data, there needs to be the guardrails and, and, and the legislation in place to protect the individual about that particular type of use case. So, you know, just in the last two minutes, we've had a conversation that's gone from ice cream to Alzheimer's. You know, and, <laughs> and I think that sort of gives you an idea of the breadth of the type of products that people could be creating and the commercial benefits of that. Now, when you actually go through the process of creating a data product, um, you know, I think, and I'm a simplistic kind of guy, right? Yeah, I'm not a data scientist. But I think most fundamentally, you have to start with a use case and you have to work constantly with your client, be that an internal client or an external client, to actually fundamentally understand the problem statement. And I think if we look across the landscape, there's been far too many instances of what are except, you know, exceptionally exciting things to talk about, but actually don't necessarily generate any alpha or there's not really a problem that they're solving for. So then the second stage is really yeah, if you understand what the problem statement is, yeah, usually a good usually a good point to take a pause and check: Do you actually already have a product that may potentially fit the bill? Um, because actually, invariably, a lot of what we're trying to solve for, there's usually somebody else has done it before, or there's something that's very similar which you can leverage. Um, so basically, don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, it's it's a mm. sort of stage two. Stage three: Look at a commercially positive idea in the context of can I actually make what appears to be a commercially viable conversation into an operationally commercial uh, opportunity. So how do I commercialize the product? Now, once you've actually had that commercial consideration, then we come to the legislative and regulatory framework. Based on the problem statement, based on the solution, based on the data product that I want to sell and generate alpha from, does that product in the way it's going to be delivered to the customer base that it's going to be delivered in the vector that it's going to be delivered by me, what is the known and the principles based and um, general ethos of the regulatory environment at a macro, regional 
and local level. Very important. Once you've got that, you know you've got commerciality, you've got legislation, and you've got regulatory consideration covered, and you start to build it. Um, you know, then obviously you deliver to the client. But I think the most important aspect of that is that you continually monitor the output, KRIs, KPIs, KCIs, so that you actually effectively benchmark and calibrate what you delivered to the original use case. Because two reasons: one, make sure it's working; two ensure that you identify early further opportunities for enhancement, refinement and, and, and retailing of the product. And you know, I'll, I'll kind of pause there with one final thought, which is if that sounds an awful lot like an MPA process for a uh, for a financial product, it's because it is. OK, and just coming back to uh, what you mentioned about that Alzheimer's study, that's quite interesting because I think um, I mean, if we look at health devices, like let's say your Apple Watch, for example, I mean, there was a, a lot of talk saying like, oh, and you can link it to your um, your health insurer, you know, but at the same time, you know, transmitting all that data, I think people started to get a bit concerned, like, OK, what? So like, let's say, for example, if I'm gaining a lot of weight or if I'm not moving a lot, um, what does that signal to my insurer? Does that mean my premiums will go up? Like, you know, so um, I think coming back to your point where like having that guardrail in place is is really important. Um, and, and it's great going through that whole steps, uh, all the steps that you mentioned earlier, but if if you could point to maybe uh, maybe give give a theoretical example for uh you know a data product creation within the capital markets i mean yeah maybe maybe go back to your interest rate uh product there um I mean, okay, what, what did a, yeah what do the steps what do the steps like look like because i you know we know uh, from from your um yeah you listing the steps that, that sounds great and all but like yeah when it comes to like a practical so-called product you know what does that look like I mean, let's take, um, I don't know, let's take uh, a multinational. Okay. okay. Um, and I'm going to swerve the question slightly because I'm not going to go specifically into, into interest rate product, <laughs> but because um, sure. I don't actually know. Um, <laughs> but um, but if, yeah, if, I, if I take an MNC as an example, um, you know, MNCs operate in, by definition, multiple countries. Right? Now, very often, if you're sitting as a corporate treasurer um, at the head of a very large multinational, you will have n thousand numbers of bank accounts um, for each currency. You know, so it's perfectly feasible that you could have a couple of thousand US dollar bank accounts um, dotted around the world, operating in different time zones, settling in different frequencies, different activities over that. So if you're sitting in corporate headquarters, it's highly feasible that you don't necessarily have visibility on the total dollar amount in your n thousand uh, accounts. So, you know, one of the data products is actually bringing all of that together, because if you think about a bank, you know, we will have visibility on all of the bank accounts that you have with our bank. But with things such as open banking and the API utilization, there's a mechanism to bring other banks into a single platform. So suddenly there's a capability and it's, it's super boring, but you're effectively consolidating all of somebody's bank accounts that may or may not necessarily be with you into one place where they can now get visibility on that. So then you start thinking about the next level of that. You know, once you've been able to deliver to a corporate treasurer, it could be an asset manager as well, it could be you know, different types of product, but effectively consolidated views. Then you have the opportunity to generate insights. Now, you know, if you think about what a corporate treasurer does, 
fundamentally, they need to make sure that they have sufficient liquidity in every legal entity that they have globally in the currency that they need to have liquidity in to ensure that they can meet their, their liabilities when they come due. Now, equally, the corporate treasurer's job as a secondary responsibility is to maximise the return on their long liquidity. So if you're sitting there as a corporate treasurer and you can see that actually based on the insights that your bank is delivering to you or your financial advisor is delivering to you, it makes absolutely no sense to be long renminbi, short dollar or long, 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 long uh, yen versus dollar. If you've now got the visibility on where your long positions are and your short positions are, you have the ability to get an insight from those economic insights to then create an action. And that action may well be that I sell down one currency by another because that optimizes my potential return. You know, equally, it may well be that there is an opportunity to place those long balances onto a term deposit. Now, again, it's super pedestrian, super boring, but effectively by utilizing the data and giving those consolidated views, you're, 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 you're putting a toolkit in the treasurer or the asset manager's uh, toolkit, toolkit which allows them to take an action that maximizes the potential return where previously they may not have had that. So again, you know, coming back to what I said about like the seven stage approach, eight stage approach, understand the client use case, understand the problem statement, because invariably the information necessary to solve that problem is sitting within the universe of, 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 of your data or the expanded universe that you can get access to. But fundamentally, it all comes back down to once you've got that problem statement, does it make commercial sense to do it? Hmm. Not an interest rate example, apologies, but <laughs> hopefully, oh, that, hopefully that's it fine. exemplifies. <laughs> all good, all good. Uh, I mean, th knowing what the problem is, that, that sounds very... Um, uh, we, we talk about that a lot because we at Waters Technology, we write about technology as well as data, right? But when people talk to us about technology, uh, I think that is something that they, you know, they have to drive home because all these emerging technologies, AI, quantum computing, blockchain, maybe blockchain the most, you know, um, back when it was in the hype cycle of it, um, everyone was just like, oh yeah, we're, we've got a blockchain POC, we're going to utilize it for this and that, you know, and another story was like, okay, yeah, maybe they didn't really have a problem, a real life problem there that they could potentially commercialize, you know, take to commercialization. And uh, <laughs> uh, it led to a lot of them failing, a lot of blockchain startups disappearing, you know, and I'm pretty sure the same. So like, even at the, at the use of technology, it's like, okay, you're going to pick this technology to use. Why? Um, do you already have something that, I mean, within the firms like Wheelhouse that you can actually use instead of, you know, deploying something entirely new? I mean, so kind of like weighing options, I guess, and which one would be the, the better of the two, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's it's the age old <laughs> dilemma. And, and it's not huge technology, right? I think, you know, one of the uh, one of my favorite examples is when, when I was living in, 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 in Russia, working in Russia, there was an advert that ran, um, I think it was for a car company, I can't remember, but basically the advert said that in 1965, the Americans spent $10 million to design a pen that worked in space. The Russian solution, take a pencil. 
And I think, you know, that's kind of the <laughs> kind of the whole point is that, you know, often the over-engineered solution, the super new technology solution, is not necessarily the most appropriate one for the job. Now, you know, interesting you talk about blockchain. Um, you know, clearly I know less about handbags than I do about, uh, you know, some of the tech. But there was a recent article this week in the FT about Aurora, Aura, the the luxury goods, um, the luxury goods consortium that's effectively putting proof of uh, proof of authenticity onto the blockchain. Now, you know, that suddenly becomes a real world example of, of, of where some of these technologies can lie. And I think, you know, the opportunities to integrate the financial services into some of those real use cases, that's where the, you know, where, where, where five years, six years ago, it may not necessarily have been obvious to integrate and, uh, and cross-fertilize one particular industry with the financial services. The technology and, and, and these sort of data adaptations are making that far more, far more uh, sort of complementary. Um, but, you know, let's take Gen AI. Gen AI. You know, it's just another tool in the toolkit. Mm. And, you know, again, because I'm sort of fairly old, uh, one of the things that I draw parallels with is in the 90s, we had extremely expensive quant mathematicians sitting on the trading desk. Um, we spent a lot of money to get super smart PhD mathematicians sitting with us on the trading floor. And the point being is that these guys were there to eke out a little incremental value for, 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 for the transactions. Now, if you follow it logically through, what we effectively ended up with was a, a foundational layer, people who built the C++ analytics libraries. Then we had generalist quants who built things such as yield curve models and vol surface models. But then we had the highly, spe uh, hi highly uh, specific, highly uh, technical quants that sat on the trading floor who did things such as add cubic splines or tailor the cubic spline or tailor the skew on the vol surface to eke out additional value from the baseline case. And I think if you look at if you look at data science and data product, it's a, it's a fairly good analogy is that there's a number of baseline cases where just getting access to the information in, in, in for example, the treasury discussion we just had actually generates alpha because by putting basic information together in a simplified form and making that accessible to the decision makers with the appropriate actionable insight off the uh, actionable um, uh, opportunity off the insight will suddenly start to generate alpha. But then there's obviously the, the, the higher level, you know, Gen AI, Gen AI and ML, it's just another tool in the toolkit to allow us to generate alpha. Right, right. So, like, in in your experience, like, where do firms actually go wrong in that in that whole process? I mean, would it, uh, it you know, in either approaching, you know, a, a creation of a data product or trying to monetize the data that they have internally, uh, either to create a new product that is used within uh, within internal teams or you know to sell externally, um, you know, is that same similar to how people how firms are also approaching technology? Everyone's different. Again, I think, you know, Stan Chart, the guys have done a tremendous job, actually, of centralizing a lot of the expertise and the skill to avoid many of the pitfalls that I would imagine you know, people have people have typically tripped over. Um, but I think, you know, the uh, the most fundamental problem is always why are you doing it? It's the why question, um, you know, the, and, and almost the so what question um, as, as well. You know, it's, it's what is the client? requirement what is the problem statement you are trying to solve for um and i think you know this is one of the it's one of the fundamental problems of our industry is that there's a lot of people my age floating around in it who don't necessarily understand the technicalities of things such as quantum computing 
but do clearly recognize that there is an opportunity to, to potentially leverage that in the future. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But, you know, fundamentally, I think the other problem that we have is that we need to compartmentalize the strategic investments that take focus on what potentially could be the future technologies that we need to be embedding. Um, and it, yeah, as an example, I remember when someone first described cloud computing to me back in 1998, I think was when I first heard the, the, the phrase. Um, it was, okay, no one's ever going to release their proprietary data to a third party and have it sitting off site. That's crazy. No one's ever going to do that, right? Okay, well, here we are. So I think it's it's, it's vitally important that we have that strategic R&D uh, to look at where the future the future environment is going to be, and that's a five year, ten year forward. That's vital because that's 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 your that's your roadmap. But then you also got the you know the more sort of benign here and now. What am I actually commercializing? And what am I actually commercializing needs to go back to that fundamental statement of what is the client issue, internal or external, that needs resolution. There's no point devoting resources to something that intellectually or theoretically is fantastic. But commercially is 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 not particularly viable. So I think that's the first big mistake. Um, I think the second big mistake is not necessarily casting your gaze wide enough, and I mean that from a geographical sense. Um, and I think again, this is probably common to many people that will be listening to this. Um, assuming anybody is listening to this, um, the there will you know, be. Don't you, worry. <laughs> <laughs> you could have. Um, yeah, you, you could be sitting in one of the regional offices, and I, I I would imagine that similar to my experience when I have been sitting in a regional office, head office dispatches something for you to implement without any consideration at all to the local regulatory environment or the local commercial environment or the local market. I mean, one of one of my favourite examples actually, and I won't tell you who it was, but one of my former employees, uh, employers, sorry, um, we we had an amazing facility on one of our e-trading platforms whereby you could click to dial. To hit a VC with the uh, the uh, the economist that had written some research articles. Now that worked phenomenally well in places such as Singapore, Hong Kong, and the US. It didn't work quite so well in low bandwidth environments. And so you had a fantastic technical solution. There was actually a fantastic commercial opportunity for you as a as a, as, a, as a sell side, and a great opportunity for the buy side to actually interact with the researcher. But of course, it didn't work in some other markets. So it ended up effectively being a, a, a bit of a white elephant. Um, so I think, you know, that's the second big, the big issue. Look at what you're doing and what you're delivering and where you're going to deliver it. And then I think the third, and it's not a mistake, it's sort of more, more a bit of guidance actually, is you need to devote appropriate time, resource and funding for horizon scanning. Because as we said at the very start, this is a evolutionary environment from a regulatory and a legislative perspective. It's also an evolutionary environment from a commercial perspective. So more than I think in the established financial products, you need to be looking at what is changing externally to your firm that has a direct impact on the product that you're fundamentally trying to take to market. Mm, that's very interesting. And I guess just before we end here, I just want to, I, I know that uh, historically, I guess, in your career anyway, you've not really been involved in data this, as much as you have been in like the CEO kind of position. You know, so what kind of excites you about the world of data and, you know, in terms from, from a productization or monetization point of view, what do you think is ahead? I think, it, you know what, it's it's interesting because, you know, whilst I say I'm not a data guy, 
every decision that we've ever made as a COO or as a risk professional has always been data driven. It's never sort right. of, oh, I think we should go short this market. Why? Well, because <laughs> I think so. Um, you know, it's it's always been there's always been a data point to rely on. And I think you know what what's super exciting is now we actually have more data available to make more informed and more cross-correlated decisions. Now, that's a double-edged sword because on the flip side to that, it's the old age, well, the age-old problem, sorry, of, of, of separating signal from noise. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, one of the fundamental truisms of financial markets is that warning you always get on a financial advert, which is past performance is never a uh, indicator of future growth. And I think if you look at a lot of the technology that we're deploying now, vast swathes of that are dependent on historical lookbacks. You know, the VAR model is a great example when we talk about risk, right? It's it's mm. it's a historical lookback. Um, one never drives the car by looking in the rearview mirror. It's a good guide, but you know you should always be eyes forward. Um, so I think that's that's an excitement and a, and, a, and a sort of caution. But I think the other thing is just you know, exemplify. When's the last time anybody actually went into the branch to take out money? Um, you know, when's the last time you wrote a personal check? Um, you know, and for that for that for that matter, when's the last time you actually worried that you'd miss the cutoff at the end of the day for the money transfer or the FX transfer? Because it just happens, right? You place the order, you have multiple mechanisms to do it, and it happens. And then you start to think back. Well, actually, how how quickly did that evolution take? And if you think along that time scale, what the next five years are going to look like? What the next ten years are going to look like? The evolution of banking, um, the integration of multiple industries uh, into a more ho homogeneous landscape. I think that's super exciting. Super exciting. Mm. I guess from a technology standpoint, I mean, if you if you were to kind of like purely geek out on the tech, um, what's it for you? <laughs> I, I I can't program my router, let alone uh, let alone geek, geek out on the tech. Um, you know, I think I, I you know I think just look at the evolution of the landscape. So yeah, I'm massively biased towards Africa. I think Africa is a superbly exciting place um, because I think. The evolution of tech and the the adoption of tech in places such now, obviously we've seen it in India, we've seen it in China, Africa. Africa is ahead of the game. A lot of people are not necessarily uh, sort of up to speed on Africa. Take a look at the telcos. You know, the telcos in Africa transact vast amounts of money. Um, yeah, you should just Google it. You can see you can see the sort of the volumes talking about. And I think that's that's an interesting evolution, right? We've gone from being paper money to having digital transfer uh, through the banks to actually now you do your money transfer over cell phones. We've got Alipay in in China. So these sort of evolutions from a you know from a, a nerdy techie geek perspective, um, you know that is fascinating because I think again coming back to what we said at the very very start, the evolution of this tech. The maturity and the cross correlation and the cross fertilization within different industries of that tech. It fundamentally goes back down to what the regulatory directors have been fairness, uh, transparency, accessibility of, of financial services. Um, you know, and I think if you look at the, the world as a whole, if we can get that population into the banking and the financial services ecosystem by utilizing tech. Well, that's a good thing. You know, everyone knows from a risk perspective that having a portfolio-based approach is the best approach for risk management. So actually getting as many people into that system and getting the offsets and the, the, the risk-ons, the risk-offs, um, and allowing technology to allow that adoption, 
it's only a good thing. Okay, great. Well, this has been a, a very interesting conversation. Um, I'm pretty sure a lot of people will listen to it, so don't don't worry about that. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, David. Thank you, Wei Shen. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope that was useful for people.